right? First John chapter number 4. We're going to be reading from verse 7 down through verse number 11. And then uh, we'll be uh, looking all throughout the book of 1 John this morning. And I hope the message this morning will be an encouragement to you. I hope it will be a reminder of why it is we do what we do for the Lord. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 down through verse 11. We'll begin together in verse 7 and then read responsively down through verse 11. All right, beginning in verse number 7. Together, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The title of the sermon this morning is very simple. It's this, Loving My Lord, Loving His Labor. Loving My Lord, Loving His Labor. We're going to talk much about the love of God today and how a proper focus and understanding of His love on us ought to drive us to deeply love Him back and love what we do him. I believe that many of us don't serve God as we ought to because we don't fully understand the love of God. Let's pray this morning. God, help us as we open the Bible, as we seek to understand it. Lord, uh, we're going to cover some things that 99% of the listener base already knows, but things that we need to be reminded of, not just academically, but Lord, emotionally. Thank you, Lord, for the great sacrifice you made for us. Thank you for salvation that you've given us. Thank you that you love us and pour out your love on us each and every day. Lord, we are a blessed, blessed people. And God, help us today as we turn our attention on your love. Lord, may we leave here today uh, inspired uh, to go forth and serve you with our whole heart and our whole life and our whole strength. And Lord, uh, God, guide us today. Guide me as I preach. Lord, uh, preach through me. Speak through me. May there be a heart connection made with each one here, from the pulpit to the pew. And Lord God, would you use the message in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If there is a singular sermon that I could preach that would reach down inside of my heart and take out the mechanism out of my chest and show you what makes me tick as a Christian, I believe it would be this sermon right here. I do firmly believe that every failure, every failure in our Christian lives comes as a result of our inability to focus on, comprehend, keep in the forefront of our hearts and minds the love of God toward each of us. Every Christian that lives selfishly for himself does so because he does not truly understand the love of God. Every Christian that refuses to share their faith with those around them does so because they do not truly understand the love of God. Every Christian that cannot forgive those who have hurt them struggle with this because they do not fully understand the love of God. You see, to understand the love of God drives us to forgive those who have wronged us and hurt us. To understand the love of God drives us to want to tell other people about that love and how it can radically change their life. It drives us to live selflessly for others and in the will of God. Four-year-old Martha was hugging a doll in each of her pudgy little arms. Looking wistfully up at her mother, she said, Mama, I love them and I love them and I love them. But they don't love me back. But they don't love me back. It is said that the young son of a pastor once asked uh, him the question. He said, Papa, what do the words cherubim and cerebim 
seraphim mean? What do the words cherubim and seraphim mean? The pastor took the time to tell the little questioner that cherubim was a Hebrew word meaning knowledge, and the word seraphim stood for or meant flame, flame. Explaining that it is commonly uh, supposed or believed that the cherubims are angels that excel in knowledge and the seraphim are those who excel in their love for God. The little boy, not understanding quite how things work, he said, then I hope one day when I die that I become a seraphim, not a cherubim. I'd, I'd a lot rather love God than to know everything. I'd a lot rather love God than to know everything. I believe that Christians who fail to give themselves over wholeheartedly to the Lord do so because they have not allowed the love of God to reach into the inner core of their heart and deeply affect them. I propose that Christians who have grown weary in their service and are tempted to quit working for the Lord do so because... Somewhere along the line, they quit experiencing the love of God to them and through them onto others. This morning, I have two simple points to the message. Four subpoints under each main point. And I want us to dive in and look at this powerful truth of loving my Lord and loving His labor. Loving my Lord and loving His labor. Number one, number one of the message this morning is loving my Lord. Loving my Lord. Look back with me at 1 John chapter 4 and look at verse number 19. 1 John 4 and verse number 19. The Bible says, read it with me. Ready? Here we go. We love Him because He first loved us. Let's read it with a little bit more energy and enthusiasm. Can we do that? Here we go. We love Him because He first loved us. Uh, You didn't love God all on your own. Nobody loved God on your own. No one wakes up one day and just says, Oh, I'm just going to choose to love God because I'm just going to choose to love God. No, you had to first experience His love uh, before you could deeply love Him. Now, watch this. This is a critical statement to uh, the point, this point in the message, and I really want you to absorb uh, wholeheartedly what I'm saying here, both in your mind and down in your heart. So listen intently. Listen with both your ears and your heart to the degree that you understand your sin and how much God hates your sin and the price that the Lord had to pay to forgive you of that sin. In, to that same degree, uh, you'll be able to love God back. That same degree, you'll be able to love God back. Let me read that again. To the degree that you understand your sin and how much God hates your sin and the price that He had to pay in order to forgive you of that sin, to that same degree, you will be able to love God back. Let me give you an A, B, C, and a D here. Letter A, notice, my sin. My sin. Sin. Uh, look with me at First John chapter one. First John chapter one, and look with me at verse number eight. First John one, and verse number eight. Again, let's read it together. Here we go. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, most everyone will admit that they are a sinner. I was out soul winning last week, and I met a guy who told me that he had never, ever sinned. And, and I looked at him. I think John Ordonez was my soul winning part. I looked at him, and I said, you've never? He, was, he had been in his 50s or 60s. I said, you've never sinned? And just in the five-minute, ten-minute conversation we had with him, he took God's name in vain two or three times. And I said, this guy just really lacks self-awareness. He He is just clueless to how sinful he truly is. And listen, while all of us here, and 99% of humanity, will admit that they've sinned, do we really fully understand how sinful we truly are? Do we really understand how the volume of sin that we produce on a daily basis. Some of you uh, came into church this morning and someone didn't shake your hand or greet you just right and you got your feelings hurt. Can I just tell you what that is? That's pride. And pride is a sin. All right? Some of you got upset in the parking lot and someone may have been double parked or 
parked in your spot. Someone here got upset because someone was sitting in their seat, even though the auditorium is a little bit emptier today. They went and lo and behold, they sat in your seat. Right? I've been sitting in the same seat for 40 years in this church. Church hasn't even been here 40 years. But I've been sitting in the same seat for 40 years. How dare you take my spot? Right? Some of you here today fought with your spouse on the way into church or got aggravated over something you shouldn't have or uh, you, um, you took something that didn't belong to you or uh, you were unkind or you said something with the wrong spirit and if it, if it, even if you didn't say it, you thought it. We've all done something along the way in the last 24 hours that is sinful and wrong. That is sinful and wrong. We really don't understand just how sinful that we are. But we're all very, very, very sinful. If you, if you can, if you're able to get there quickly, turn over to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 9. I want you to see this passage this morning. Mostly we're going to be in the book of 1 John, but I want us to look closely at a handful of other passages along the way. Paul here is addressing the church of Corinth, and the church of Corinth greatly lacked self-awareness on how carnal and sinful that they were. And Paul here is going to try to kind of grab them by the shirt and shake them a little bit and say, you are very sinful, and you were saved out of deep sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, and look at verse number 9. Look there, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Look at that next phrase. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul was telling the church, the church, this church, he was saying, you were these things except for the blood of Jesus. You were these things. You were uh, uh, full of sin. And if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus laid on your account, this is still what God would see when He looks at you. Let me tell you who you and I are in our base state. We are perverse and capable of any and every sin. We have an ability as Christians sometimes to look down our long, pharisaical noses on people and say, well, I don't do this, and I don't say that, and I don't talk this way, and I don't act that way. Let me just tell you today that if it weren't for the grace of God, you very well could very much be right where they are doing what they're doing. I don't care who it is. Uh, listen, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you very well could have committed some of the most horrific atrocities that have been committed across mankind. Have you ever stopped and wondered what it takes to take an average citizen and turn him into a Nazi soldier and have him mass kill Jews and bury them, uh, their dead bodies in graves? Have you ever wondered what it took for an everyday ordinary person to grow up and get involved in the slave trade that funneled hundreds and thousands of Africans over here and treated them uh, uh, less than human, subhuman. What does it take for an average, ordinary person to be turned into a, a machine that can commit quite a sin? You think, well, I would never do such a thing. Be careful that you've been born in their shoes and grown up in their environment with the same sin nature that they had. You very well could have become and done the same exact thing and the same exact atrocities. Why? Because in our sinful state, we're all wicked and we're all uh, uh, filled uh, with the capacity to do great wrong. Can I tell you who you are at your core? You are a sinner. You may be a same sinner, but at your core, you are a sinner all the same. And may I remind you how much God hates your sin. He hates your sin. You see, you cannot understand the love of God toward you until you understand how much He hates deplores, uh, 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 cannot stand, is turned off by, finds your sin abominable. He hates your sin. Do you know what God sees every time you sin? Do you know what God sees? He sees His Son nailed to a tree. Oh, how that hurts the heart of God. Before we move on with the message, I want to stop and I want you to realize that in your natural sinful state, you are covetous. Some of you have been doing some Black Friday perusing and you've done some coveting uh, over the last 24 hours, haven't you? You are covetous, you are lascivious, 
You are a fornicator. You are idolatrous. You are a thief. You are a reviler. You may say, I've never done some of those things, but if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd all roll around in these sins the way a pig rolls around in his mud. We come to church and we get all dressed up and we look nice and and polished and cleaned up, but listen, all of us in our worst state have done things that we regret and want no one to know about. We're all sinners and God knows all about it. You see... You cannot understand the love of God until you understand how sinful you are and how much God hates your sin. Letter A, my sin. Letter B, notice His sacrifice. His sacrifice. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent... His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Read 10 with me. Here we go. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I don't know that this conversation happened, but I can imagine that maybe when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, before God went down, and confronted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that maybe God the Father and God the Son had a conversation that sounded something like this. God the Father says to Jesus, Well, they did it. They sinned. And I must keep my word. I told them the day that they ate the fruit that they would surely die. Jesus said back to God, maybe, He said, But you love them, don't you? Surely you don't want to send them to hell. God, the Father, looked back at Jesus and may have said, Yes, I do love them, but my justice must be served. And I must keep my promise to punish their sin. Jesus stands up and He looks at God in the face, His Father, and He says, Then don't punish them. Punish me. Allow me to go to earth. Allow me to become one of them. Allow me to suffer in their place. Punish me and let them go free. If the price of sin is death and hell, then God had to make quite a sacrifice to send Jesus to die in our place. Oh, many of you here know the story, but I don't want to appeal to your head right now. I want to appeal to your heart. Jesus came to earth, and at the age of 30, He began a three and a half year public ministry. There was no guile in Him. He gave His life from sunup to sundown and even beyond, ministering to the needs of those who were hurting ministering to the needs of those who were broken by the sin curse. He would heal the the lamed, and He would uh, cast demons out of people who were possessed, and He would take people's lives who had been wrecked and ruined by sin, like a Mary Magdalene, and He would uh, restore them and give them a reason to live again. He'd go to the pool of Bethesda, where a man had been laying there, uh, lame on his feet for 40 years, and He'd say, "Uh, do you want to walk again? Do you want to be made whole? And He would make the man walk again. He would find some blind man, and He would put mud on his eyes and give him sight. He would find uh, a blind Bartimaeus who would cry out, Jesus, Son of Nazareth, have mercy upon me. And Jesus would walk over and He would touch him and give him his sight back. He would find a woman who had an issue of blood and no doctor could help. And she would by just simple faith reach out and touch the hem of His garment. Virtue would leave Him and she would be made whole. Jesus, for three and a half years, not only went around and He healed people, but He taught the truth with such authority that showed up the Pharisees and embarrassed their shallow religion. And after three and a half years of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish council uh, being exposed as phonies by Jesus. They took Jesus by night and they arrested Him. They decided if we can't beat Him, we're going to eliminate Him. And they took Him and they brought Him in by night and they put a bag over His head. 
and all the spite and animosity in their heart, they got in a line and they'd ball up their fist and they'd punch him across the jaw and they'd mock him and say, if you really are the Son of God, then prophesy and tell us who hit you. Each person that hit him, Jesus thought, I made you in your mother's womb. Jesus thought, I gave you your hair color and your eye color. Jesus thought, I, I made you and in a few, few hours I'm going to die for this very sin of you hitting me in the face. Then they would spit, spit in his face. I don't know if you've ever had someone spit in your face. I had a child spit in my face when I was a teenager. I wanted to pick him up by the neck. Okay, I didn't because his mother was there. <laughs> Praise God his mother was there because I may not be your pastor right now. All right, I mean it. I was very angry. You've ever had someone spit in your face? It is, it is awful. And they stood there and took turns spitting in the face of Jesus. Jesus had a conversation with Caiaphas, the high priest, and Caiaphas didn't like the way Jesus was speaking to him, so he ordered to have a man just reach up and just sucker punch him right across the jaw. They marched Jesus around all of these different uh, uh, leaders, both political and spiritual, and then Jesus made his way before Pilate. Pilate was under great political pressure by the Jewish leaders, the Jewish spiritual leaders who he oversaw and needed to maintain peace in order to maintain uh, Nero's um, uh, favor on him. And so he was in a very difficult spot. He questioned Jesus, found nothing wrong with Jesus, and wanted to let him go. But boy, the, the religious leaders turned up the pressure, political pressure. And so Pilate thought, I'll, no, I'll, I'll, have him, I'll have him beaten and maybe that will drum up some sympathy in them. And so he had Jesus stripped naked. He had his hands tied down to a post and a very, a very skilled Roman guard, the Bible tells us, took nine leather whips tied down into one handle. History tells us that there would have been a piece of glass or sharp pottery or rock uh, spliced into the end of each of those nine whips. And uh, Jesus tied to that post naked in front of those who uh, wanted it, bloodthirsty, that wanted to watch. We, the, we don't know how many times he was hit, but we know that he was beaten with that whip. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that burrows were left in his back, just like a field. Uh, uh, they, they pulled the flesh away, and, and, and there he must have fallen to the ground in great pain and agony. History books tell us that these Roman guards who used these things were so skilled, they could take a man to the edge of death and then bring them back to life and not kill them in order to torture them. How much does God love you? The, Jesus allowed thorns woven into a crown to be mashed down between his skin and his skull and the blood to come running down his face. They put a scarlet robe on his back and a reed in his hand and got down on their hands and knees mocking him, bowed to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! Ha ha ha! We got him now. They brought him before Pilate and Pilate thought, Well, surely now the crowd is satisfied, but the raucous crowd cried louder and louder from the courtyard, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate took a basin of water and he washed his hands. He said, I am clean of the blood of this man. Have ye at him. They took Jesus and they put a very heavy wooden cross on his back. He walked right outside of the town of Jerusalem, crumbling under the weight of the cross along the way. Yes, Jesus was God in his spirit, but he was man in his flesh. His flesh caved and gave in and they grabbed a man named Simon out of the crowd and Simon helped Jesus get the cross the rest of the way to Calvary. Many men would fight the nails. But Jesus willingly stretched His hand out. They didn't need three men to pin His arm down. He willingly laid down His life, the Bible says. They took a railroad-sized spike and they pushed it in through his wrists. 
on the cross. They contorted his body, lower half of his body sideways, and ran a nail, long nail through his ankles into the cross. And they lifted him up toward the sky. And history books tell us they would have taken a heavy maul and pushed the base of that cross over a couple of feet and three or four feet down that cross would have fallen in a hole. It would have hit the bottom and every joint in the body of Jesus would have come out of place at the same time. There He hung between two thieves. Then God in heaven took the sin of all mankind. He took every sin that I've ever committed in my life and He took it over to Jesus. He who was rich became poor so that we who were poor might be made rich. Oh, what love. Oh, what love. God bankrupted heaven and allowed His Son to suffer for the sins of the world. But more specifically, He died for your sins. And He died for my sins up there on that tree. I like John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world. I like even more Romans 5.8, which reads, Christ died for us. But I love Galatians 2.20, which reads, Who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world. He didn't just die for us. He sacrificed for me. And He sacrificed for you. And He gave Himself for me and you. We're going to understand God's love toward us. We must understand Letter A, my sin. Letter B, His sacrifice. Notice letter C, my salvation. My salvation. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1. 1 John chapter 2 and look at verse number 1. Read those first three words together with me. Can we do that? Here we go. Ready? My little children. If you're not there, it's my little children. Everybody ready? Here we go. My little children. Look at chapter 3 and look at verse 18. Chapter 3 and verse 18. First three words together. Here we go. Ready? My little children. Do you know what I was before I got saved? I was a child of the world and I was a child of the devil. But the day I got saved... Jesus reached down into the slimiest of pits and He rescued me and He saved me and He washed me in the blood and He adopted me into His family. I'm not just some lost sinner. I'm not just some uh, uh, abandoned child of the devil. I am a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received Him. You remember the day you received Jesus? You remember the day you asked Him to be your Savior? But as many as received Him to them, gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Do you know why I'm a child of God? Because God looked down from heaven and said, that man right down there uh, isn't very lovable, but I'm going to love him anyway. I hate his sin. And he's covered in it. But I'm going to save him anyway. The songwriter of yesteryear, Isaac Watts, he would word it this way. He'd say, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, saving the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them. To His blood, see from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. I've been saved, I've been given a home in heaven. 
I'm here today to tell you that God didn't just love me the day I got saved. Rather, God's love is poured out on me each and every day. Each and every day. And by the way, if all God ever did was love me to save my soul, and He didn't love me a single day after that, that by itself would be enough for Him to earn the right for me to love Him back. That's not all God does. Every day I wake up on a soft mattress and a nice pillow and I wake up as a married man next to my wife and I've got my kids in my house and I've got food in my fridge and I've got a car in my garage and and I've got clothes in my drawers and I've got all kinds of good things that God's poured on my life and I wake up every day and I look out and I say, God, You've poured down Your love on me each and every day. I don't deserve any of it. I don't just have Your mercy forgiveness from hell boy you pour down your grace and you love me each and every day oh the love of God how rich and pure we see my sin we see his sacrifice we see my salvation letter D my sentiment my sentiment look at chapter 4 of 1 John look at verse number 17 1 John 4 look at verse 17 herein is our love made perfect That we may have boldness when, in the day of judgment, when I stand before God at the judgment seat one day and give an account for my life, boy, I ought to stand there with boldness. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Look at 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Here's a statement that's going to go on the screen. I'd like for you to write down somewhere. Here it is. If Christ can die for me, then I can live for Him. If Christ can die for me, then I can live for Him. Let's read that together. Can we do that? Here we go. If Christ can die for me, then I can live for Him. One more time. If Christ can die for me, then I can live for Him. As a very young man, I began to realize on a profound level God's great love for me. When I say as a young man, I mean as a child. I had watched how God's love had radically changed my father from a lost, confused teenage boy into a responsible, hardworking, faithful husband and father. You want to talk about a redemption story. My father is a walking redemption story. I look at my uncles, my dad's older brothers, and while two of them have landed on their feet, boy, they sure made a lot of mistakes, suffered a lot of pain along the way. They'll tell you that themselves. My dad's dad, as I've shared before, took his own life. My dad was just an eight-year-old boy, and my dad's brother, my uncle Mike, would follow that same path and take his own life. My dad's older brothers were all strung out on drugs. They were 1970s kids and, and uh, living the, 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 the free love and hippie lifestyle and uh, 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 pornographic posters hanging on the wall in their rooms. And, and here my dad is, a young man who's lost in no direction in life. My, my grandmother was dating a, a man who would end up being going to jail, at, in and out of jail as a criminal and and um, just not a good guy. Robert Berry was his name. And, and um, that was my dad's model of who a dad should be, who a man should be. Somewhere along the way, my dad met his soul winner while he was out playing basketball. And that man opened up the Bible and told him about how Jesus had died for his sins on the cross. My dad, with a basketball under his arm as a 14-year-old boy, bowed his head and he asked Jesus to forgive him of his sin and save him. My dad's life completely changed that day. He'd go on and pay his own way to go to Christian school and graduate from Central Baptist School in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He'd head off to give his life to serve God in full-time ministry where he'd meet my mom. and He and my mom would parent seven children. I'd get the privilege of being the oldest of those seven children. Today, all seven of us are either in church or have gone to church. My sister and Her husband are missionaries in Fiji, so it's Monday over there. But believe me, they were in church yesterday. (laughs) And uh, all seven of us in church. I've got a brother who's a missionary in Honduras, sister who's a missionary in um, 
uh, Fiji. I've got a sister who's a deacon's wife and down in North Carolina, a brother who's driving a church bus this morning in Chicago picking up boys and girls for church and uh, other siblings who are all o- over the place going to church and loving God and serving and ministering. Why? Because God's grace and God's love reached down into a broken home and picked up my dad and loved him and saved him. And my dad said, if Christ can die for me, then I can give my life to live for him. I grew up in a home with a dad who had come from a broken home. We'd go visit my grandmother who still had all kinds of baggage from problems and pain in her life and even in a struggling home she grew up in. And I watched how God was changing my dad's life and a loyalty of God's love swelled up in my heart. And I said, God, I want to serve you. I want to live for you. I remember as a little boy listening to Ron Hamilton's Patch the Pirate Adventures. By the way, if you've got small children and you've got some sort of streaming service, look up Patch the Pirate and play those adventures for your kids. It had a big impact in shaping me into who I am today. There was one song in particular that even as an eight or nine-year-old boy, I would listen to it and my heart would swell uh, with love and loyalty toward God. And I would become overrun with emotions and tears as an eight or nine-year-old boy would run down my cheeks. Our children sang it for us just last week in church. It goes like this. I thank you, Lord, for all you've done. I don't deserve your love. When I was lost, you saw my need and left your throne above. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord, because of Calvary. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You're everything. To me, you proved your love on Calvary. You bore my sin and shame. I'll live for you through all my days. I'll praise your holy name. Sing the chorus with me. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Because of Calvary. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You're everything to me. I came to the conclusion as a small child that if Christ could die for me, then I could live for Him. Why is it that I gave my life to serve Jesus? Why is it that I set my life on a course to live for others? Why is it that church ministry has become my career? Why is it that I have done my best to say no to sinful lifestyle choices? Why is it that I trust God through life's hardships? Why is it that I tell others regularly about salvation? Why is it that I follow God's model for marriage and the home? Why is it that I want to please God with my wife for the rest of my days? Why is it that I do my best to live my life as a living sacrifice for God. Because if Christ can die for me, then I can live for Him. Every decision I have tried to make from my childhood up was made with serving God full time with my life, who I hung out with in my teen years, where I was during church service and teen activities, where I went to get my higher education, the very woman that I would marry, how I would pursue my career path. All of these decisions were made with living for Christ in mind. Now, let me be very clear on this next part of it. Please hear what I'm about to say. God does not call everyone into the pastorate or into a pastor's wife position. But God does call everyone to serve Him with their life. God has called me to receive a paycheck from a church and uh, work full-time here at the church and receive a check. But whether or not you receive a paycheck from a church, God has loved you and saved you so you'll love Him back through full-time Christian service. You say, I'm too busy to serve the Lord. Then you do not understand the love that God has toward you. Some folks today might be sitting here and you think I'm quite cynical. 
I've had great pain and hurt in my life and I've not seen the love of God present in every situation. In fact, I've experienced trauma. I've experienced hurt. I've experienced loss. I've experienced hardship. I've wondered where God was during my darkest hour. And my friend, God in heaven was in the same place through your dark hour that He was when Jesus hung on the cross. God let Jesus suffer so you could be saved and He very well have may have let you suffer so that you could turn around and be a blessing to someone else. Don't ever question God's love. He put Jesus through, through hell to save your soul and give you an eternity in heaven. Loving my Lord, do you share that sentiment today that God gave His life for me? Christ gave His life for me. And if Christ can die for me, then I can live for Him. Number one, we see loving my Lord. Number two, let's look at this thought, loving His labor. Loving his labor. A little boy declared that he loved his mother with all his strength. He was asked to explain what he meant by with all his strength. And here's what he said. He said, well, I'll tell you. You see, uh, we live on the fourth floor of our apartment building and there's no elevator where I live and the coal is kept down in the basement and mother is busy all the time and truth be told, she isn't very strong. So, I see to it that the coal hold in our apartment is never empty. He said, I lug the coal up four flights of stairs, and I do it all by myself. He says, and it's a pretty big hold to fill. He said, it takes all my strength to get it up there. I've got to take breaks along the way to get it up there. He said, uh, but uh, now, isn't that loving my mother with all my strength? God has commanded us to love Him with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. So what does it mean to love His labor? Letter A, notice, a labor of perfecting. A labor of perfecting. Look at 1 John chapter 4. And look with me at verse number 12. The Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. Read the rest of the verse with me. And His love is perfected in us. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, 1 John 4. Herein is our love made... What's that next word? Perfect. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in the world. There is, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Many Christians do not have a pure understanding of what God's love really is. Our version of love is contaminated with lust. Love says, watch this, love says, I'll give. Lust says, I'll take. Love says, you first. Lust says, me first. And all of us in here today, all of us, every single one of us, because we're sinners, our definition of love is corrupted. All of us. You may have grown up in a home with a loving mother and father who took good care of you and um, did not abuse you and watched over you and made sure that you were raised in a home that was, in, in scare quotes, normal. But even you, my friend, because you're a sinner and you lived in a sinful culture, have an issue with lust uh, coming in and contaminating what love really is. It is a process to have the love of God perfected in us. Let me give you some thoughts here. And uh, just jot these down here underneath this subpoint here. First, jot this down. Jot this down. Write this. It is a process. It is a process. You must labor to better understand how much God loves you. And then you learn how to love others. You have to labor. Now, some of you in here did not grow up in a home with what we'll call a functional home. You grew up in what we'll call a dysfunctional home. What is a functional home? A functional home is one that does its best to follow God's model. 
God's model is that a man leaves father and mother and cleaves unto his spouse, and the two become one flesh. Two become one. We find that in Genesis. We find that with Jesus, and we find that with Paul. All three lay out that model, that husband and wife who are devoted and loving to each other, following God's model, then give birth to children, and mom and dad together raise those children up under the same roof. Dad leads mom, mom leads the home, mom and dad lead the home together, and this, as they live under the love of God and love each other through that love, this is a functional home. You say, well, that's old-fashioned. Call it what you will, but it works. It works. That's God's model. Now, sin has a way of working its way in and breaking up that structure. And if you're here today and that's where you are, I'm not here to throw any stones at anybody or to judge you. I don't think anyone who gets married stands there on their wedding day and says, I sure hope in three years we're divorced. No one ever says that on their wedding day. You say, for better, for worse, till death do us part. And I think people mean that when they say it, and then life gets really hard. Life gets really hard. And I'm not here to throw a single stone at a divorced person today. If that's what's happened, you don't need me to stand up here and look down some judgmental nose at you. You need me to show grace to you because that's what God does. He shows grace. But you know what? If you've grown up in a home that was less than, 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 than the biblical model, then you may be in a spot where understanding the love of God is just a little bit more challenging for you. You know what you've got to do? You've got to work it. You've got to get in the Bible, and you've got to read and study just how much God loves you. Because you can't lean on human experience. You can't lean on your own understanding. And even if you had a dad who did his best to do it God's way, even that is somewhat broken, and you need the love of God to step in and make up the difference. It's a process. Next, notice it is a study. It is a study. Now, I've been preaching through the book of 2 Samuel on Sunday evenings and the book of Isaiah on Wednesday evenings. And I think the people who've attended those studies have learned some things about those books and maybe have even been challenged. But can I tell you who's gotten the most out of 2 Samuel and Isaiah? Me. You know why? Because I'm spending hours in my office breaking, parsing the Word of God and, and understanding it on a deep level. By the way, if you think I preach long, I cut about 40% of my study out of my sermons. Okay? I dive way deeper than I preach. And I have to, I probably should leave more out. But I already do leave a, a lot out. He who does the work does the growing. He who does the teaching does the most learning. How many of you have learned that in life? You do the teaching, you do the learning. I can get up here all day and tell you about you need to perfect God's love. You're not going to perfect God's love until you dive in the Bible yourself and you study it. Because as you study it, you will grow. It is a meditation. It is a meditation. When you're sitting idle, what do you think about? Do you think about your fantasy football team? Do you think about home decor? I'm trying to get all people's groups in here. You think about your next scrapbook you're going to put together? I don't know what hobby you have. Do you, do you think about work? Maybe you have a hard time checking out of work and you bring it home and you have a few idle minutes and work comes rushing in. Do you think about the movie you watched last night or the Netflix series you just binged? I don't know what it is that you think on. I'm not sure what it is you think on. But it ought to be that you occasionally sit and you mentally chew on the love of God toward you. I was driving down the road this past week and I was in a time of praise and gratitude and I was in prayer, riding down the road and dwelling on God's goodness toward me. And I began to get choked up and about that time, Angela calls. And uh, instead of declining the call, I thought I would just share it with her my time of praise. And so I answered the call and on the car speakerphone and by myself. And I'm so choked up over the goodness of God and the love of God being poured out on me. I, I couldn't, even, couldn't even finish the conversation with her. You see, 
The love of God is all around you. The love of God is poured out on you daily. It isn't a question of whether or not it's there. It's a question of whether or not you're focused on it. And some of us, we're so busy focusing on everything wrong in our life, we can't see the love of God being poured upon us. It's as though God has got us wrapped up in His arms like that little girl with her doll. And God is saying, I love them and I love them and I love them. But they don't love me back. It's a process. It's a study. It's a meditation. It is a rejection of Satan's version. It is a rejection of Satan's version. You need to be able to identify the lust in your heart, and you need to be able to identify it and expel it. Identify it and expel it. Covetousness is lust. Sexual uh, uh, impropriety is lust. Pornography is lust. Looking at another uh, woman's husband and wishing he was your husband is lust. And we need to reject Satan's version. We need to embrace God's love, and we need to perfect that love within us. It's a labor of perfection and it's something we must work at. Letter B, notice, it's a labor of propitiation. A labor of propitiation. Look with me at First John chapter 4 in verse 10. I'm about to preach, preach away my voice here. Amen. I think you get the idea. I'm passionate about what I'm preaching this morning. Thankful for a backup bottle of water. Amen. First John 4. Look at verse number 10. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is a word we don't use in our everyday English. And i got to be honest with you, before I put the sermon together, I had some idea of what the word meant. I did not fully understand the word. And so we're going to put it up on the screen here for you. The textbook definition, here it is. Propitiation is the act of appeasing wrath and winning over the favor of the offended. The act of appeasing wrath and winning over the favor of the offended. Now think about this. God was angry at me and you for our sin. Angry at us. Why? He hates sin. He hates it. Put that back up there for me. God uh, hated our sin. And God needed His wrath satisfied. So you know what Jesus did? He stepped between me and you on the cross. And He absorbed the wrath of God. So the wrath of God could be satisfied. And then God could love us and forgive us. Aren't you thankful that Jesus became your propitiation? Now, I'd like you to turn over to first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to show you something here. Another word for propitiation. Thanks, guys. Another word for a propitiation is the word, I would say, a, a cousin word. It's not exactly the same, okay? Not exactly the same, but very similar would be the word reconciliation, all right? Similar idea. Now, propitiation, you actually become the absorber of wrath. As a reconciler, you may not absorb wrath. You may just clarify things so that people can uh, have a good relationship, okay? You're a mediator. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 17. The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let's read 18 together. Here we go. Ready? And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So God looked down at us and He said, I hate the sin of humanity, but boy, if I could find a way to forgive them of that sin and appease my wrath, then I'll then love them into heaven. And so Jesus stepped down and God reconciled us by Jesus Christ. Jesus hung up on a cross and He absorbed the wrath of God. And because of that, we are reconciled with God the Father. And then verse 18 says, Then God, after He saved you, He gave you and I the ministry of reconciliation. I go around Stratford in the greater area and I talk to people. I talk to people all the time who are sinners, just like me and you. But people who are not saved sinners, they're lost sinners. And I try to tell them about Jesus. I try to tell them about what He did for them on the cross and how He wants to save their soul. And you know what I find with a lot, a lot of people? I find that they are angry at God. 
How many of you know what I'm talking about this morning? People are angry at God. Now, are they right to be angry at God? No. But their perception is their reality. So you know what I try to do? I try to articulate the love of God so that they and God can be reconciled. I take the ministry of reconciliation. I've been reconciled to God through the propitiation of Jesus. Boy, I want to reconcile others to God. But I don't just want to reconcile others to God. When I have an offense with a brother, I want to reconcile myself with the brother. We all go through life and we all get offended and we all do our share of offending. All of us. All of us. You know what? Um, you know what's wrong? What's wrong is for you to expect others to forgive you when you won't forgive others. That's wrong. It's wrong for you to bank on Jesus forgiving you of your sins and then you won't forgive others of their sins. And you continue to hold it over their head and you continue to club them with it, sometimes even decades later. It's wrong. And if you don't verbalize it, boy, it comes out in the way you treat them. And you continue to hurt that person year after year after year after year. Hey, aren't you glad God let go of your sins, buried Him in the deepest sea, cast Him as far as the east as the west, and forgave you? Don't you think it may be time to reconcile with someone who's wronged you and forgive them? Now, there's a difference between forgiveness and trust, and I've explained this many times. Forgiveness can't be earned. It's given. Trust is earned. Just because someone has hurt you doesn't mean you ever have to trust them again. But you sure do have to forgive them. A labor of propitiation. Why do I forgive others so quickly who have wronged me? Because I live under the faucet of God's love. I cannot help it. Letter A, we see a labor of perfecting. Letter B, a labor of propitiation. Letter C, a labor of proclaiming. A labor of proclaiming. Here is something that many Christians dread. And I mean dread. Proclaiming Christ to the world around them. Look at 1 John 4 and look at verse 14. First John 4, look at verse 14. John says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth within, in Him and He in God. Notice how matter-of-fact that John is about what it is that, uh, that we are to do because of the Savior's love toward us. He said we have seen and do testify. We have seen and we do testify. He, it is almost as though to have seen salvation in your life, the natural reflex is what? To testify. How many of you here have ever gone to the doctor and gotten a physical? I don't like physicals. I don't get them as often as I ought to, right? You're supposed to get them every year. I think I get them about every... Well, we won't talk about that. All right. And, um, but you're sitting there and you're getting a physical and they, they, they take this little hammer, right? And what do they do? They pop you on the knee. And if you're normal, what do you do? You kick the doctor is what you do, right? If you're normal, right? No, you don't kick, but you kick, right? And uh, if they hit you... And you don't kick. Well, now there's reason for concern. Isn't there? They pop you and you... Now watch this. The day you got saved, you tell. You with me this morning? The love of God saved you. You got to tell. In fact, if you get saved and you don't tell, there's something wrong with you. Because how could you experience the love of God on such a profound level and sit on that love and not tell anyone? I mean, John said, we walked around this guy for three and a half years and we watched him do all these miracles and then we watched him hang on a cross. We watched him become the sins of the world. John was there. He actually did. We saw him put in the grave and then we saw him resurrected and he's commissioned us to go proclaim. He said, man, we have seen and now we do testify. 
Now, you may not have seen Jesus in the flesh, but boy, how many of you have seen Jesus change your life? Oh, man, if you're not raising your hand, then I question whether or not you're saved. How many of you have seen Jesus change your life? Then, boy, you better get busy telling others about that. It's a, I don't go soul winning out of some drudged obligation. Oh, I've got to go knock on doors or I'm wrong with God. Oh, I better pass out a track at the gas station or I'm, God's going to be angry at me. Oh, no, 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 no. I've moved past that a long time ago. I tell people about Jesus because I have a message of love to share with the world. I don't think God's angry at me one bit if I don't go soul winning. I may get to heaven and find out I'm wrong. I don't need God to be angry at me to get me to go soul winning. I go soul winning and I tell others about Jesus because how can I not tell others of what Jesus did for me? If you struggle with sharing your faith, I'm just going to say this this morning, and I don't mean to chastise you, but I want you to wake up. If you struggle with sharing your faith, then you truly do not understand the love of God toward you. If you truly understand God's love to you and you want to love Him back, then you cannot help but tell everyone about Jesus and His salvation. It's as natural as sharing the cure of cancer to a cancer patient. You just you just share it. The labor of proclaiming. I live under the love of God. I cannot help but perfect that love. I cannot help uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but proclaim that love. I cannot help but tell the world about the love of Jesus. Letter D, lastly, notice a labor of pardon. And I've already touched on this somewhat, and so we'll only spend a moment on it. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and look at verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother... Look here, the Bible says he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? God is saying here there is no excuse for you to hate another brother. It is not the job of the Christian to love the lovable. It is the job of the Christian to love the unlovable. That's what we've been called to do. You know why? Because God from heaven looked down and He loved you when you were unlovable. You say, that, that person over there, they've hurt me, they've offended me. God's called you to love them anyway. You see, that person over there, I don't like their attitude in life. Uh, they're bent, they're, 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 they're broken, they're, they're, they're strange, they're odd, they're unruly, they're prejudiced. Fill in the blank of whatever uh, problem they have. God has not called you to love the lovable. He's called you and I... To love the unlovable and the broken. I think Matthew 5.44 sums it up well when Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Christian unity can be summed up in the words forgiveness and forbearance. That's what Christian unity is. Christian unity is not that me and uh, David Escalante down here have to think the same on everything. Or that me and Sean have to believe everything just the same. This right here is my wife. We think very much alike in a lot of things. We don't agree on everything. But you know what we have in our home? We have unity. You know why? Because she forgives me and she puts up with me. There's forgiveness and there's forbearance. And there are times where I forgive her and I forbear with her. And there are times where we forgive our kids and there are times where our kids forgive us. There's forgiveness and forbearance. And you know what? In a church with brothers and sisters in the Christ, sometimes people are going to get on your nerves. Sometimes they're going to offend you. You're not going to like something they say out in the hallway. You're not going to like something they say to your face. You're not going to like the way they treat you. But listen, if God has loved you, then you can't help but just show grace to people and have a love of pardon. Just like those dolls being hugged by those pudgy little arms... God is loving you and loving you and loving you. Christian, I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you loving him back? Or does God say like that little girl, I love him and I love him and I love him, but they just won't love me back. Let's not be selfish with God's love. Let's be selfless. Let's live in it. Let's live because of it. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed. And every eye closed. This morning, 
I want to ask you a very simple question. And the first question is this. Have you experienced the love of God at salvation? Have you let the love of God displayed on the cross be your pardon and save your soul? You see, your sin is real. God, God's hatred for your sin is real. But the sacrifice Jesus made for you is just as real. And the salvation He offers you is free, but it requires that you have a heart of faith. And until you extend your hand of faith out there and receive the gift of eternal life, then salvation is something that's available but not yours. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day in my life I put my faith and trust in Jesus to save my soul. God's love has saved me. Here's my hand in testimony. If that's you, would you just hold your hand up? I know I'm going to heaven. I know Jesus has saved my soul. I have believed in Him for salvation. You can put your hands down. Is there one here today that would say, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I don't know that I'd receive that gift of eternal life. I understand that Jesus died for me, but I just don't know yet that I've yet received that. Would you please pray for me, Pastor Lejeune? I have no intention of embarrassing anybody, but I sure would like to pray with you. There's already one with their hand raised. Is there another? I don't know that I've received that love, but I sure would like to know more about it. Would you pray for me? Is there another? Is there another? I see another hand. Is there another? Would you please pray for me? If you raise your hand, boy, I sure would like to have the opportunity. I'd like to have Pastor Andrew have the opportunity to share with you about Jesus. Last week we had a gentleman walk down this very aisle and he sat right over here on this front row and with tears in his eyes he asked Jesus to save him. And I'd like for you to be the next. If, if you would, come down the aisle here and let us tell you about Jesus. If you're not comfortable doing that, then why don't you catch me or Pastor Andrew after church and we'll have a lady sit with you and share with you the good news of salvation. Who here today says, Pastor Lejeune, the love of God has not been my focus like it ought to be. Boy, there's some changes I need to make in my life. My whole perspective on why I do work for the Lord or what I do for the Lord, there's some changes. There's some alterations that need to be made. Pastor Lejeune, help me to live under the love of God and the service of God. Here's my hand. Would you please pray for me? Please pray for me. God's love needs to radically change the way I think and live. Lord, would you help us today to put you first, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you can die for us, then surely we can give our lives to live for you. Lord, be with us today. Help us to make decisions that matter in Jesus' name.